Creative Babble. I wasn't expecting to be back with a new pretend episode so soon. In fact, I'm still wrapping up the final episodes for my new show, Criminal Conduct. But the world has changed, and scammers are on the prowl. If you live in the U.S., chances are you probably already received your stimulus payment. It went either straight into your bank account or through direct deposit. Or some of you may have already cashed your check that you received in the mail. We're talking about some much-needed money for tens of millions of Americans out of work due to the coronavirus. $1,200 for individuals and $3,400 for a family of four. The IRS has sent out 150 million payments so far since the time of this recording, but more payments are still expected to arrive throughout the end of June. My mom is one of those people still waiting on her check. I was asking people like, if they got their check. I have it. <laughs> and she says that several people in our family didn't either. Eric no ha cogido. Yo no cogido. Um... And if you haven't received your check, you're probably wondering, what's the holdup? Unfortunately for some, your money is probably already gone and in the hands of a thief. Today, I'm going to show you exactly how easy it is for scammers to steal your money. In fact, I have challenged a privacy expert to try to hack into my personal information, and I'm really shocked at what he was able to find. This might be the scariest pretend episode ever. I'm Javier Leva, and this is Pretend. Stories about real people pretending to be someone else. Picture this, a foggy evening, the whisper of secrets in the air, and an invitation to step back into the glamorous and mysterious 1920s. That's the backdrop of June's Journey, the game that's been keeping me glued to my phone lately. Instead of doom scrolling on social media, I am actually playing the part of June Parker, a daring detective with a personal mission to solve her sister's murder. And let me tell you, it is a roller coaster of emotions and puzzles. What's to love? Well, first of all, the thrill of hunting for hidden objects. I'm a sucker for these kinds of games. It's kind of like those books that we grew up with, but with a storyline that keeps thickening. Plus, the game takes place in New York to Paris, uncovering clues of scandalous family secrets that make you feel like a real detective. If you're ready for a dose of mystery, romance, and the glamour of the 1920s, June's Journey is waiting for you. Download it for free on iOS and Android, and let's see who cracks the case first.
I'm Eva Velasquez, president and CEO of the Identity Theft Resource Center, a longtime uh, victim advocate, and I've been in the fraud space for over 30 years. Eva runs a nonprofit organization called the Identity Theft Resource Center. Her business is to offer free advice for victims of identity fraud. And right now, business is good. We just ran the stats yesterday, and we have seen an 88% increase in traffic into our call center this month. That, and you didn't mishear me, 88, 88% increase. If you're the U.S. government, what's the quickest way to disperse trillions of dollars in coronavirus stimulus money? You have to balance getting things set up quickly so people can, the legitimate people can get the relief that they desperately need without creating too many security flaws and opportunities for the thieves. And it is a challenge. It's a balancing act. But this was deeply flawed. <laughs> deeply <laughs> flawed. Yeah. Kind of describe some of these scams that you're seeing. Are they all the same? Do they vary? <laughs> How long is this podcast? Do we have two hours? Unfortunately, right now, it's a scammer's paradise because the, the pandemic creates opportunities across all of these different channels. Now this is global. So everyone is dealing with the pandemic in some manner. And so everyone is a potential target. So let's talk specifically about the stimulus checks. Have you seen any uh, customers or clients of yours come in and say that their stimulus check has been swiped or stolen? Yes. Yes, it is actually the number one complaint into our call center right now. And behind that is uh, unemployment benefits, identity theft. Most people don't even realize that they've been scammed until they log into the IRS website to check the status of their payment. By then, the money is gone. So how exactly do you steal someone's stimulus check? Well, it turns out it's quite easy. All a thief needs to do is find out a few key pieces of information about you, log into the IRS website, and voila, they're in. And I'm going to show you how easy it is. My name is Michael Basil, and I'm a privacy and security consultant. I, I help people disappear whenever they need to not be found. Michael Basil is the author of Open Source Intelligence Techniques and Extreme Privacy. He's investigated computer crimes on behalf of the U.S. government for over 20 years. Most of that time, he was assigned to the FBI's Cybercrime Task Force. And he was also a technical advisor for the first season of the hit series, Mr. Robot. I've asked Michael to try to find out every piece of personal information about me on the web. I knew that there was information out there about me, but what he found left me in a state of panic. I, I know you did some homework, but we'll dive into that later. And I'm extremely curious about it, <laughs> about what you found, because I have not been taking it as seriously as I should. I'm sure it'll be a rude awakening. Yeah, I did a quick look. I didn't do a deep dive or anything just because there is. Before we get into that, let's talk about data breaches. You hear about it in the news all the time that Target had a data breach or this company had a data breach. And, and it sounds so far removed from our regular lives. Like, where did this data breach go? You know, like who has access to this information? I guess what I didn't realize was until I read your book 
that even I could have access to that information. Sure. And that blew my mind. <laughs> yeah, that's the scary part is that uh, the things that you had to have a tech savviness to do in the years past is now just an internet search away. I've been collecting data breaches for many years. And you had to not only know where to get them and how to get them and how to store them and how to search them, but you had to know what to do with them. And today there are tons of websites where you just either for free or for a small amount of money, you put in your suspect or your target's name or the person you want to harass and you get quite a bit of information. So describe these databases. How do they work? What are they? Dehashed is one of many websites that will collect the same type of databases I collect. They just make them available for query online. You pay a, a small fee, you pay a few bucks for a week or whatever, and you can search anything in their database. And what happens a lot of time is these sites get seized. So f for example, with WeLeakInfo, several international government agencies seized their website and took it offline and you can't get that anymore. That happens all the time. But when that happens, four more pop up. And what kind of information do you get out of these data breaches? It depends on what you're searching for. Um, some are better than others. Some will have the complete breach. Uh, let's, let's just do an example. We'll do something old and very public, like something old like MySpace. Very old database. It was breached, I think, in 2012. And you're going to get email address, username, maybe a real name. And you'll get usually a hash value, which represents the password. And if it was a very poor hash, like an old hash, like a SHA-1 or an MD5, you can crack those online pretty easily. And then you have someone's actual password. So I went on Dehashed once and it freaked me out. I felt like I was playing with a Ouija board. Sure. And I, I looked up my information and I actually found almost a complete password. It was incomplete. I, I grab new databases every day that have been breached and published somewhere online. And some of those are all accurate. Every single password is accurate. So you're at the mercy of one, how old is that database? Uh, how old is that password? Two, has that person updated their password since? And then finally, the most important three, do they recycle that password? Do they use that password on every single website that they visit? If so, then I, you have a, a much bigger problem than if you had, say, chosen a unique password for every website that you use. You're describing a problem that I'm guilty of, that I'm sure a lot of people are we guilty all of. Are. And, and, and what is that? Password recycling. We've all done it. Uh, I've done it. I, I can say I don't do it anymore. I, I now have a password manager that generates passwords randomly for me. But we've all at some point in our lives had that maybe that one password that either we used it everywhere or we used part of it everywhere. Maybe you had that one word that you liked and you would add something after it for every different website you used. Or maybe you just recycled that one password everywhere. So how can my listeners check to see if their password has been breached? Um, well, I think the first thing is accept that it has, even if you don't check it. Whatever password you've been using for the past 10 years, it is publicly available online somewhere. Uh, I recommend sites like Have I Been Pwned that will not tell you someone's password. It will not tell you your own password, but it will tell you based on your email address, which breaches that are public, which you appear in. And then you will know what password you use there and you will know if you are vulnerable. If you're listening to this right now, chances are your password is out there. At least Just one. Accept it. And, and maybe it's an old one. Hopefully it, it wouldn't work anywhere, but something's exposed. Yes.
let's talk about how to remedy this, right? So let's just assume my password is out there. What do I need to do now? Well, I took a peek at yours and uh, you probably saw the same stuff I did. Uh, can I say it? I guess you can bleep me yeah, out, Yeah, right? go ahead. Yeah, I'll yeah so out. most of the stuff on your exposure was one, uh, the password of one was used at a lot of places, uh, such as my fitness pal, bit.ly, I think Kickstarter, you were in that one, you were in the 500px.com breach. So it looks like for a while, you did the same thing that I've done. And probably everyone else has done you had that one password you liked. And one. it's a stupid one. Too. Yeah, it's a pretty <laughs> bad one. But I, I have no I can't judge I've done just as bad. But what I did notice is you used it everywhere, just like I did. And so therefore, if I let's say that I, for whatever reason, uh, I'm on your Cafe Press account, which you had, or you have a Cafe Press account, I can see your email address and I can see your password. One, I would now just assume that your Gmail account password is one. And now I don't really care about getting into your Cafe Press account. That does nothing for me. But if I can get into your Gmail account, that is much more powerful because I can do password resets on your bank or whatever else I want. I'm going to try to log into your Gmail account with that password and just hope it works. And if it does work, I'm in. And if it doesn't, I just go find someone else who wasn't as sly as you. That that was a very old password, but my new password is much more sophisticated, but still... Is it too? No. Okay. <laughs> it's recycled everywhere, right? So what can a cyber thief do with the information found in breached databases? As some of you know, the IRS has extended the deadline to file for taxes from April 15th to July 15th. That's plenty of time for scammers to steal your tax return. People are saying that they've become victims of tax identity theft, where someone has filed taxes in their name. And I know that sounds counterintuitive because a lot of people go, well, why would they do that? I don't get a return or I don't get a refund or I always have to pay. But here's the thing. They're not using the legitimate financial information about you, just your identity credentials. And then they make up all this other financial information. They make up a fake W-2 and so that they can structure the return or the, the tax return in such a way that they actually do get a refund and a usually a very sizable one. The one-two punch in this instance is that people are either trying to file their taxes or they are waiting for their stimulus check and they find this out. So not only has the thief used their credentials, absconded with a hefty return, and those are taxpayer dollars, but now they've also received the stimulus check as well. Wow. And you mentioned something else that I'd never even considered, but you mentioned unemployment scams. How does that work? Well, unemployment identity theft has, it's been around for a while. It is not a particularly lucrative or popular scheme. It's where an individual uses your identity credentials to apply for unemployment benefits. But now with the extra $600 per week and the fact that some of the barriers have been removed. So a lot of the manual processes of interviewing someone and having to go into the office and those types of things, they, they've been removed. They do everything online. They, they build an account. And if they have your identity credentials, whether they secured them, you know, buying them on the dark web or through a breach, uh, then they can just apply for those benefits. And when legitimate users go in and say, I need, I'm now an employee, I need my benefits, they go to file and they find out somebody's already been collecting benefits in their name. 
COVID-19 scammers don't just want your stimulus checks. They want to track your every move. We know that one of the most effective ways of stopping the spread of the virus is through contact tracing. Contact tracers are public health officials who work closely with the infected person to get the names and phone numbers of everyone they've come in contact with. If you come in contact with the infected person, you may get a text message from the health department, and the health department will never ask for personal information. But some of these text messages are not from the health department, but they look like they could be. And if you click on the link, well, you're toast. Software could download to your device, giving scammers access to your personal and financial data. But it's not just phony text messages. Have you heard of contact tracing apps? Basically, you use the app to identify if you come in contact or close to someone who has tested positive for COVID-19. In the United States, there are no legitimate approved contact tracing apps. Different data has different value, but please treat your identity credentials just like you would your cash in the bank, just like you would, you know, grandma's pearls. You secure them. You keep them safe. We have to do the same thing with our identity credentials. And I think that's an important message for your listeners, that it's not just about your cash, although in the end, that's what they want. They also want your data. There's all sorts of ways that the fraudsters could contact you. What are, what are some of the ways? Well, phishing emails are really uh, huge. Phishing has always been a big, big problem, but it's even bigger now. But these phishing emails, they are pretty sophisticated in terms of when you look at them, they look real, right? Like yes. they actually say something about the IRS or something like that. Describe some of these more clever phishing scams. The intent behind them is always to get you to either click on something or download something so that they can install that malicious software in your computer. But these phishing emails, they are pretty sophisticated in terms of when you look at them, they look real, right? Like yes. they actually say something about the IRS or something like that. Describe some of these more clever phishing scams. Some of them are still bad. Some of them will still have errors in grammar and misspellings and fuzzy logos, but not all of them. There are some that are so good. You just, even an expert can't tell the difference. Our advice to people is just go back to the source don't actually respond. If it's incoming communication to you, you didn't initiate the communication, go back to the source. I'm going to communicate with my bank in the normal way that I do, whether that's logging onto an app that you have on your phone or the website, the online website where you have an account or calling the number on the back of your card. I want you to pay attention. Seriously, I'll wait. If there is one thing I want you to do after listening to this episode is to get a password manager. I repeat, get a password manager. I'll have a link to a few of them in my show notes. Here's Michael Basil again. What's your advice to listeners about using a password manager? Well, I think the first advice is they are mandatory now. It is mandatory that you use a password manager. My opinion is, if you can remember, if you have all of your passwords in your head for all the sites you are using, then you have really poor password policies and you're very vulnerable because some of those are exposed and now you're at the you're at the mercy of the hacker who may or may not pick on you. I don't know if you remember the prank call series yep. that I yep. did. Well, after I did that series, I don't know if it's the same guys or not, but they 
uh, hackers hacked into, you know, those nest cams yeah. that people have inside their houses mm-hmm. and were talking to kids right. and being creepy. Sure. And the way they got in was doing what we were talking about today. It was yeah. not that they hacked nest, but they were able to log in. Right. And password yeah. recycling. It's a, it's a mm-hmm. huge, huge problem. I don't know any of my passwords except for my password manager password. And that's the way it should be. Everything else should be something generated. So we talked about passwords, right? Being hackers or anybody really just looking these up in public databases. But what about your social security number? Most people's social security number, they're out there. They're not as easy to find. You're not going to go to some free site and just pull up someone's social. There are websites that will just for a few bucks sell you someone's date of birth and social security number. I did look you up and I do believe I have your date of birth and social. I don't know if you want me to try to prove that Uh, to you. You could go ahead and and tell me and I'll let you know. Uh, I'm showing your date of birth as November 1980 and your social ends in. But do you have the complete social? That's terrifying. <laughs> and, and and that, you just did that today. You just, how long did it take you to find that? I just went to the site that I rely on and I found, it was just a matter of a couple minutes, really. Kind of a quick peek, but my social's on there too. And we're all exposed to an extent. My opinion is social security numbers at this point are public information and we have to accept that and we have to do whatever it takes to protect ourselves based on that knowledge. Do not ever think that no one can get your social security number unless they have authorized access. Those days are over. Wow. That's that's just crazy because I knew I, I knew going into this that you would get my password because the chances were high. But my social, that, that just makes... I mean, if you're listening to this, that should make you feel very vulnerable. I went to a shady website to get it. But even if I didn't want to do that, I could have went through legitimate means. We know that sites or that companies like Equifax and all these different places have had breaches. So we know that data is out there. That's why we just have to accept that if someone wants to get your social and use it for malicious purposes, they can do so without hardly any roadblocks. So if somebody got my information right now, you know my password, you know my social, you know my date of birth. What other pieces of information would you need to know to open credit or get workers unemployment benefits or steal my stimulus check? Part of that depends on what you have done to stop me, Uh, whether you have credit freezes or fraud alerts or any of that kind of stuff that could really uh, add that roadblock to what I want to do. Most people that are stealing other people's identities aren't really targeting an individual. They are just trying to get X number of people's stuff and cash out. The more difficult you become, the more less likely they will focus on you. They will just move on to someone else who's a bit less difficult. Now, that being said, I have enough to at least apply for credit. Again, my success is going to depend on what have you done to try to stop me? If you've done nothing, I have everything I need right now to at least apply uh, and see where that goes. If you have a credit freeze, now I have a couple more hoops to jump through. And if you have a fraud alert, now I have an extra layer I have to go through, which probably isn't going to work. So let's talk about that. Credit freezes. Do you recommend that people, you know, if you're not buying a house or buying a car right now, that you freeze your credit? I recommend everyone with a social security number has a credit freeze on the top six credit bureaus. 
years ago, and let's go back maybe five years, maybe even more, a credit freeze was kind of bulletproof. You froze your credit. The credit bureau sent you a PIN number via postal mail to a confirmed address for you. And unless you had that PIN number, you couldn't unfreeze your credit. You lose that PIN number, it's going to take you 30 days to probably get that unfrozen. Those were kind of the good days to where a credit freeze, I think, worked fine. I still believe everyone should have a credit freeze, but it doesn't prevent people from stealing your credit anymore because most of the credit bureaus have dropped the PIN requirement and I can unfreeze your credit if I just know a few things about you. That's where it gets into kind of a kind of a shady area. Yes, still have the credit freeze. You have a layer of protection, but know that that does not make you bulletproof. And then you also talked about fraud alerts. What What is that and how does that work? If you have a credit freeze in place and I want to apply for a credit card in your name, I'm going to be asked a series of questions such as uh, which of these addresses was once your address, uh, which of these phone numbers was once your phone number. And if I answer those correctly, I can bypass your credit freeze. But a fraud alert adds a new layer. An example of that is if I have a fraud alert with all the major credit bureaus, or let's do the example here. You have a fraud alert and a credit freeze. I try to apply for credit. I answer some common public questions about you, which it gets me past your credit freeze. The fraud alert kicks in and says, wait a minute, this guy's got a fraud alert. Because of that, call him at this phone number that he provided on file and just make sure that he wants this done. And what will happen is if I try to apply for a credit card saying I'm you, that credit card company will most likely say, hold on, you have a fraud alert. I'm going to call you at the number on file, answer that call and we'll continue. And if you can't answer that call, and if you can't confirm this is what you want, then I can't go on any further. That's why for me, the credit freeze plus the fraud alert, that's the combination which everyone should have if they truly respect their privacy. As a podcaster, I'm always looking for for people to interview. And there are sites out there that give me all types of information. But it, it didn't dawn on me until I started reading your book how many of these sites exist. It's almost like whack-a-mole. So, like, describe, uh, describe these sites where basically you could just pull up all sorts of information. Well, they're, they're people search websites. They're websites that have collected databases of people's home addresses, phone numbers, relatives, and basically their entire lives. And they put them up so that people can search. There are hundreds of them. Some are better than others. I'm looking at yours right now. So I just pulled up a few of these. I show your middle name is Jose. Uh, the, uh, I'm showing an address of 24. Court. Is that accurate? Yeah. And I just moved there less than a year ago. So that's already up there? That's already up there on at least 40 websites. And it's probably because I bet you have your utilities and your real name. Yep. Yeah. So that's probably pulling from utility records, maybe an occupancy permit if the county publishes that, or if you purchase the home and the property taxes on your name, that's where that's pulling that from. That then attaches to a handful of phone numbers, uh, former addresses on Aston Woods Court, uh, Coral Gables, Florida, it kind of goes back to your history of where you lived. And those are on dozens of websites. Uh, and also on uh, one called True People Search, I see the same information, but I also see your email address, uh, which is the Gmail account. I see a, a, an old Yahoo account, and now I get a little bit more information from you. As an investigator, I use all of this to combine it together into building this big dossier on you. And it's all, of course, free information. Uh, it's available about pretty much any of us in, in America, at least. And so how do you remove your private, well, I mean, your publicly available yeah. information from these sites? 
it, it's difficult. It's, let me take that back. It's not difficult. It's time consuming. Uh, it's I put a free workbook out. Uh, you're welcome to link to it. There's there's no catch there. It's just a PDF file, which is a section of my book that I keep updated of all of the people search websites, which allow you to remove your information. And it walks you through each of them. Most of these websites, you can go to a specific page and say, Hey, this is me. You've got my information. I don't want it online. Take it off. And it's an automated process in about 60 seconds. It's gone. And now no one can see it. That sounds easy until you have to visit 100 websites and keep doing this over and over and over. Yep. I agree. I will definitely link to that because it is time consuming. There are hundreds, right? <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's very overwhelming when you think about it. It seems to make sense. And I, I hope that everyone listening does this, but we're lazy, right? We're lazy and that's going to cost us because right now we don't feel like we're a target. But until we go try to get a loan for a car and find out our credit's bad. I mean, most of the time, how do people find out that they have been breached? It's usually either by trying to obtain credit and being denied or being notified that they are past due on some kind of payment. Uh, it could be something simple like someone opened up DirecTV in your name under your credit. They never paid the bill. DirecTV found out that you live over at this address and they're contacting you for payment. That's a pretty common scenario. If you have that credit freeze and that fraud alert, the chances of someone pulling that off are just really slim at this point. Look, if you haven't received your stimulus check, don't panic. The first thing you should do is check the IRS website to see the status of your payment. Chances are, it's still in progress, but some people won't be so lucky. If somebody stole your stimulus check, can you retrieve it? Can you file a complaint or what, what does somebody do at that point? I mean, I hate to say this, but time will tell. You know, in normal times, you would be able to reach out to the IRS. It's it's hard to get in touch with them. There are long wait times. Uh, in in Under normal circumstances, at tax time, there are long wait times with the IRS. Now, at this time, they are not even available. And so the people that need to go to this entity to report the fraud and report that they haven't received it, they can't get through. My podcast is about con artists and deception and their victims. And for me, con artists typically strike when people have lowered their defenses. They mm -hmm. heighten the sense of urgency. And therefore, people like you and I would, would act in ways that we normally wouldn't act. How do you see that playing out with all these COVID scams? The, the con artists and the scammers are designing their messaging to... Um, get us into that fight or flight mode. So to your point about creating a sense of urgency, um, they, they use that either that sense of urgency that there's going to be some kind of penalty. If you don't do this now, you're going to go to jail. If you don't do this now, you're going to have to pay more because the interest rates are, are increasing. Or the fear of missing out. If you don't do this now, you won't get X. And they use that because it, that engages that primitive part of our brain that's really good at protecting us, but really bad at making logical choices and decisions. Yeah, right. And they know it. It's embarrassing, right? It, isn't it embarrassing to get, to get scammed? It's less about the shame and just more about the trauma because this is not this is affecting people in such a deep way because a lot of the people that we're talking to 
this is causing them to go without money and benefits that they critically need to get their basic needs met. I was counting on that $1,200 to pay my rent, and now I'm afraid I'm going to get evicted. That's traumatic. It's going to have a long tail. It's going to affect more than just people's immediate life for, you know, for the next day or two or week or two or even month or two. This could have repercussions for years. Michael Basil says that these types of scams don't have to be a hopeless situation. The government's really standing up the stimulus process really quickly. And some people have been victimized and haven't received that money because it, it just takes four pieces of information to get into the IRS website. And now it's the time to start questioning, are those four pieces of information about me publicly available online? If so, where? And if so, can I remove it? Uh, and that's really the key piece is be as proactive as you can. Most clients, when they reach out to me, something bad has happened to them and they've never imagined that that bad thing would happen to them until it did. Unfortunately, when something bad happens, that's not the time where we can do a lot to help you because the bad thing already happened, the information's out there. If you are proactive about it, there's a good chance that it's wasted effort. You might take all of this all these actions to protect yourself and no one cares and no one's looking for you and no one ever tries. That's a great case scenario. The other side of it is you could take all these actions and someone does try to come after you and they realize you're just a hard target because you've got random passwords for everything. Your home address isn't online. I just, you're, you're a pain. So I'm going to move on to someone else. And at this point in this messed up world we're in, that's all I can do for people is make them less of a victim and make suspects go find someone else. So in other words, you're not going to ever eliminate the risk, right? But right. You're, you make it harder, right? And you make it so that it's not worth their time because there are millions of other people who have sure. not taken these precautions. Well, Michael, thank you so much, man. Yeah, my pleasure. That was awesome. This was way more impressive than Uri Geller, the psychic. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. I remember that. And I bet Michael is not even your real name. I don't know. You know, what is a name at this point? It's just something you call someone, so. I hope all of you and your families are doing well. This is a really tough time, but just know that crisis like this current pandemic is like chum for con artists. The best thing to do in a situation like this is to be aware of their tricks. I'm going to drop one more COVID-19 scam episode, and then I'm going to work on the regular season for pretend. So be on the lookout. And by the way, my mom did finally get her check. All right, guys, take care of yourselves. Be safe. We'll talk soon. Welcome to Down the Rabbit Holes podcast. I'm Melissa. And I'm Amy. We're really excited for you to check out our podcast. Yeah, so we're going to do what y'all love, which is talk about theories. So the format is one of us each week will bring you a story. And 
After we're done telling the story, Melissa and I are going to discuss theories. We'll talk about what may have happened and what could have happened. Basically, the conversation every true crime person loves after they get through a case. So check us out. We're on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. And you can follow us on all the social medias, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We're Down the Rabbit Holes Podcast. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Creative back.